Welcome to the Diane Podcast. Diane, or Diversity and Inclusion in Asia Network, is the leading network of companies and professionals committed to advancing diversity and inclusion in their organizations in Asia. Leveraging a decade of expertise and thought leadership, we hope this podcast inspires, educates, and motivates passionate individuals like yourself. My name is Tina Arcilia, Senior Manager at Community Business, and I manage the Diane Network. We are so happy to have Michael Kaufman with us today. Michael, of course, is the co-founder of the White Ribbon Campaign, the largest effort in the world of men working to end violence against women. Michael is a public speaker, author, and consultant, and his innovative approaches to engage men and boys in promoting gender equality and transforming their lives has taken him around the world over the past three decades. Now, we invited Michael to speak to our members virtually about gender equity back in 2016 and at a senior leader roundtable in Hong Kong just last year. So, Michael, welcome back to Hong Kong and welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you. And congratulations to the Diane Network on 10 years. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's been an incredible journey thus far. First off, we'd love to hear about how you started your own journey. Tell us about the motivations you had, how you started the White Ribbon Campaign. I'd been working for about 10 years during the 1980s to engage men to promote gender equality, and to really try to conceive of and develop new ideals of what it means to be a man. And up to that point, I really hadn't been doing any social advocacy as such on those issues. It had been more speaking here and there, writing, researching. But reality kept impinging. And in Canada, what that meant where I, I live in Canada, Uh, We had a national tragedy. Fourteen women were murdered in 1989 by a man who resented women becoming engineers. As simple as that. And a couple of years after that, uh, two men approached me and said, uh, you know, let's let's try to do something. Let's, Let's do something for men to speak out. And what I felt that we needed wasn't just a few good men saying, you know, women were on your side, were opposed to violence against women. But we really needed a way for men in our millions to speak out to end violence against women. Because the thing is, when we think about men's violence, whether it's physical violence, sexual violence, emotional abuse, financial control, all these different forms of men's violence, sexual harassment at the workplace, what we know in most countries, the majority of men do not do these things. But the problem has been the majority of men have been silent. Now, when you figure that men still control governments and police forces and courts and the media and religious establishments and, you know, governments from top to bottom, if men are silent, that means that the violence is going to continue because the weight of men, the authority of men, the lawmaking, the funding, all that stuff, the policing isn't going to happen. And not only at that level, but at the individual level. Men, well, men look to other men to define what it means to be a man. So if men are silent about sexual harassment or wife assault or other forms of, of, of assault and abuse, if men are silent about those things, in a way, those men who are still committing those things are going to assume 
oh, this must be okay. Everyone must be doing this. So the three of us started uh, the White Ribbon Campaign in Toronto in 1991 as a way to end men's silence about violence against women. And we started it as a totally decentralized campaign. We, we, we figured that people knew best in their own communities, in their own workplaces, in their own schools, in their own countries, how best to reach men and boys. So we weren't trying to set up a big you know, organization or infrastructure or anything like that. We had an idea. And it spread instantly across Canada. Now, in different ways, it spread to, I think, probably 80 or 90 countries around the world. Now, in most countries, in some countries, the campaign has come and gone. In some countries, it's a small effort. In a few, like Australia, New Zealand, it's, it's a really huge, prominent campaign. Michael, you've been working on this for over three decades, on gendered power dynamics and hypermasculinity, those not being just a women's issue. What has happened to now bring the situation to a tipping point where we see men getting really involved in the discussion, in this movement towards gender equity? So the idea with White Ribbon really was around ending men's silence, to get men to speak out on what has for too long been described as, quote, only a women's issue. Don't you like it when people say this is, quote, you know, only a women's issue. I, I mean, last I checked, women were over half of the population of the world. So even if it were, quote, only a women's issue, that would be quite an issue. But what we do know is that by saying that this is a concern for women and not men, what we're doing is we're not naming the problem. Because, of course, when we talk about violence against women, most of it, not all, but most of it is committed by men. Not all men, not even most men, but when it is committed, it's more likely or not than not committed by men. So it certainly is a men's issue. Uh, it's an issue about men's behavior. Uh, it's an issue around men's silence. It's an issue around the laws that generations of men have passed. It's, the, it's an issue around how men have police laws and enforce laws. So we wanted to redefine that. So that campaign is now spread around the world, and, and it's... Uh, it, it, it's good to see. It's good to see that there are men everywhere. And in many countries, it's men and women organizing this campaign, but men and women working together to, to bring this, this problem to an end. You know, when I think about some of the changes over the past um, decade since Diane started, but, but even going, you know, a bit before that, you know, 20 years ago, but even going 10 years back, when I think about the work that I do, specifically engaging men to support gender equality, engaging men to support uh, changes in our ideals of manhood, you know, that, you know, for example, around the transformation of fatherhood, when I think of engaging men um, to speak out against violence against women. When I started doing this work, certainly in the 80s, definitely still in the 90s, into the, the knots, um, the 2000s, um, it was still seen as a pretty weird thing to do. Um, I know I would get responses um, I've done a lot of work over the years in the UN system, but even in the UN system, you know, in those years, it was seen as a distraction, as a why bother with men? These aren't men's issues, and um, and that's all changed. Uh, you know, organizations like UN Women, um, international NGOs, uh, national women's organizations, and companies are all saying the same thing, which is we've got to engage the men. 
And this is this is uh, this is a massive, massive change. It's an exciting change, because what it is, it's the natural complement to to the women's movement, to feminism, to to ideals that that uh, we're we're in a generation of transforming the lives of women. Well, you can't transform the lives of women without transforming the lives of men. Uh, you know, sexism, uh, discrimination don't exist in the in a vacuum. Uh, if you have discrimination against half the population, uh, that means it's because the other half has gained a series of privileges and forms of power. Now, individual men may not feel that. Individual men may feel, no, I don't have power. And of course, you know, when we think of our system, it's not just men over women, but some men over other men and, you know, and so forth. But um, what we do know is that, for example, we've had a, you know, since the rise of male-dominated societies, maybe 8,000 years ago, we've had this protracted affirmative action program for men. Uh, you know, men didn't have to compete with the other half of the species for jobs, for advancement, for leadership. Well, suddenly things have shifted. And men can either react by being resistant, stubborn, hostile, uh, and try to push back change, which women aren't going to allow. Um, or we can say we can embrace that change. And the reason why I think more and more men are embracing change, well, I think there's actually a couple of reasons, several reasons. One is out of love and caring for the women in our lives, uh, knowing that you know we, we want our daughters, our wives, our, our friends, our sisters, our mothers to have lives free of violence, to have opportunities and possibilities, uh, to have equality, to have justice. The second reason why I think more and more men are embracing change is we're discovering it's good for us too. Men are discovering that the ideals of manhood that we've lived by have not only given us forms of privilege and power, but have actually trapped us, trapped us in narrow definitions of manhood that just aren't good for us, um, or they've been good for us in ways that also cause huge problems for us. And so no wonder men are more likely to be in um, uh, uh, prison than, um, uh, than men, more likely to be addicted to alcohol and other drugs, more likely to engage in risk-taking behavior and die younger. Uh, the ideals of manhood don't work for us. So we're seeing more and more men embracing change, not only because it's good for women, but it's also good for men. And one area where I've been doing a lot of work in um, with colleagues around the world is on promoting new ideals of fatherhood. Uh, we have a, a, a fairly new network called MenCare. That's men hyphen care org um, that is really pushing for men to do half of the care work on the planet and what that means is not only you know in individual households and relationships men not just helping out with with the household jobs and, and child care but just being an equal parent um, it means within a company policies around work-life balance equally affecting uh, women and men so some big changes for men and the third reason why more and more men are embracing these changes is that we know it's good for companies, we know it's good for productivity, we know it's good for our economies and societies as a whole. So it's sort of one of those win-win-win sort of things. Um, it's still challenging. It's still difficult. There's still men who are resisting change. There's still some women who are resisting the change. But what we know and what we're seeing is that this change is being embraced by more and more people because we know it's going to have a positive effect on women, on men, on children, and on our society as a whole. These really are exciting and fast-moving times. One where I hope we see men and boys and just people in general 
feel free to be who they are and who they aspire to be without being forced to conform to a narrow definition of what a man or a woman ought to be. Now, I strongly believe that this starts much earlier in the way we approach parenting, socialization of children, and our educational system, but let's bring it back to companies. We're now seeing more and more people speaking up about sexual harassment in the workplace. We've seen this in the scandals that have surfaced in Silicon Valley and, of course, in Hollywood, with all these stories around Harvey Weinstein coming to light. What do you think has caused people to speak up and say, look, enough is enough, we refuse to keep silent, we're taking a stand, and we want to do something to stop this from happening? Well, the first reason why we're hearing so much about sexual harassment is that it's a problem. It's a problem all over the world. And yes, we've had these you know, high-profile cases in, in, uh, in California. But you know, let's be you know, both in, 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 in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. But let's be clear, this is an international problem. Um, and I, I remember back in the 90s, I was doing a, a speaking at a business school in, um, uh, in, in Europe. And I was, I was, it was actually a class. I was lecturing about sexual harassment. And, at, you know, the students, all the, the first year I did it, all these male students were, this was a, a, an executive MBA program. Uh, these were experienced people. And they were, you know, the, the, the men in the group were raising their hands and saying, oh, this is just, a, you, you know, you people from North America are crazy. This is just you being silly. You're sexually repressive. You know, whatever. This isn't a problem here in Europe. Well, after the class, but only after, a whole number of women students came up to me and they were a minority in the class, but women came up and said, thank you, because this is a problem in Europe. Mm-hmm. Interesting, when I returned to that same school a couple of years later, a couple of years later, the same, you know, the same subject, women were speaking out in their classrooms. So this isn't something, it's a Western problem. This is a problem that is, that is everywhere. So the first reason why we're, we're, we're hearing about it is it's a problem. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we're hearing about it now is courageous women and some courageous men have been stepping forward, um, or trans people, and have been saying, this has happened to me. Both sexual harassment and, and sexual assault, because what's been coming out are stories both around workplace harassment, but in some cases workplace actual sexual assault. So uh, in, in some incredibly courageous people stepping forward um, uh, and, you know, against, against social stigma, against you know, worries about their career, but in other cases a sense of of relief and empowerment and, and able to control their own destiny. So I think it's the type of thing that, that, like a lot of things in social change, boils and boils under the surface. And it sometimes just takes a few few courageous people to start stepping forward. And, and, just, and then it just, the, the, the dams burst. I think I just mixed metaphors, <laughs> under the surface dams. But anyway, you know what I mean. Um, the, the other reason I think we're, it, we're, we're, we're seeing this coming forward is that finally more and more men um, are aware of these issues that we've had in, in, in some workplaces anyway, some decent workplace training and policies now for, for some time. And I think that we're starting to see the, the fruits of that, 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 that you know, we're, we're seeing more individuals, and I'm not talking about the, these super high-profile cases, but just day in, day out, um, thankfully more workplaces that have some good policies and I don't just mean something on paper, because uh, you know a, a policy on paper is is 
is nothing. I mean, it, it's it's it, it it barely registers. It's it's just sort of uh, it's often just window dressing, or so a company can say, "Oh, look, we've you know, yes, we of course we have a policy, and it's just you know covering yourself." But I mean, you know, some some places that have good policy and effective training, and men and networks of women and of men who are aware of these issues, who are there to give support, and who are speaking out. What do companies really need to do to support real change in their organizations? Well, there's so many different levels that change is necessary at the corporate level. One of the, the things that has been exciting for me is, is increasingly uh, I've been invited by, by companies uh, to, to speak with them, to speak to them, to speak at meetings, and including at the you know, very senior level, because we need the leadership from the top. And I say that's exciting. I don't just mean that at a personal level, but what I mean is it's indicative of the change taking place. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, the talks I'd be giving would be in the UN, for governments, for NGOs, in universities. But now um, uh, both public and private sector companies are saying, we've got to embrace these changes. We've got to know how to do it. And we have an evidence base. We have an evidence base from around the world of what actually works to engage men. We have an evidence base of the types of policies we need. Uh, For example, when we think about ending workplace harassment, um, it's you know, what we know around sexual harassment. It's not usually those blatant sort of things, not, not necessarily the stories we're reading about from Hollywood, but the more subtle forms of harassment that are the day-in, day-out grind that, that women and some men face. And um, uh, so what we know is we, we need policies that reflect that. Uh, we need training that reflects it. We need training of managers to know how to respond, because it's it's. Uh, I've written about this quite a bit. That's not just a you know you can't just come up with a list of don't do the following ten things, um, because many things that we do day in day out might be fine, might not be fine. But it depends on the context. It depends on tone of voice. It depends on the impact on someone. So we need really subtle sort of training. Um, I, I've called the training that I, I developed a number of years ago now, red light, green light. And it uses a, the, the metaphor of a traffic light to, to talk about this. And it's training based on saying, okay, there's certain red light things that you should never do in the workplace. There's a whole bunch of green light things that, of course, you can do. You can be friendly with coworkers. What gets people in trouble? Just like driving, the place that gets people in trouble is where the light changes. That's where accidents tend to happen, is at the, that yellow, that orange light. And similarly in the workplace, it's the things that are open to interpretation. You know, can you tell that joke? Can you touch a person that way? Can you say a certain thing um, that get people in trouble, that can cause, that can be harassing? So the, the, the policies and the training has to be really grasping, grabbing onto those subtleties. We need better training and we need better policies around uh, family-friendly policies to allow the next generation of, of, of our workforce to uh, find a, a better balance in their life, both if we want to attract top talent, but because it's, it's something that both women workers and increasingly male workers are just clamoring for. Um, so we need those family-friendly policies. Uh, we need le- leaders. We need our male leaders to embrace this change. One of the things that I say to, to corporate leaders is that uh, being um, a champion for gender equality shouldn't just be an add-on. It shouldn't be something that you just say and, and make a statement once a year, um, but it has to be part of a daily commitment for change uh, and, and, and to be that champion of, of, of equality. Uh, it's going to be good for your workforce. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for your company. It's going to be good for the, your society. And, and to really push men to 
to, to start by listening to the voices and concerns of women um, and, and to embrace change, to embrace diversity, to understand our growing and increasingly diverse workplaces. So we have workplaces that are welcoming, uh, that are embracing uh, diverse populations, you know, diverse in terms of men and women, diverse in terms of sexual diversity. Uh, so people who will feel at home in that workplace, whether they're a man or woman, whether they're gay, straight, trans, whatever it might be, um, that we're really embracing that diversity. And a diverse workforce brings different viewpoints, different talents, different abilities, and that those differences strengthen it. You know, when you think of, of, of what creates strength in terms of metal, um, if, you know, if you just have some iron, um, it's pretty strong stuff. But we know now that if you add other elements and you create steel, it's going to be stronger and long-lasting. So bringing in diverse elements, just like in the natural world, into our workforce, bringing in diversity strengthens our uh, workplaces, strengthens our economy, and strengthens our own individual experiences. And that's the direction we need to go. Another great metaphor, Michael. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for the great work that you've done over the past three decades and the work that you continue to do, as well as for your time today. To everyone else listening in, join me again next time as I speak with Margaret Regan as we explore the future according to a futurist.